We are live with the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse Curated Conversation Podcast from Greenwich Village, City of New York. Tonight's book, War in the Ring, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling, and the Fight Between America and Hitler, published by Roaring Brook Press. The authors, John Florio and Weezy Shapiro. John and Weezy, welcome to the conversation. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, and John. And me. And you. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Uh, and for those of you listening who may not know, John and Weezy are the authors of One Nation Under Baseball, which was a great event, a great evening in the clubhouse, and One Punch from the Promised Land. Together, they've written about sports for the New York Times, the New Yorker, The Atlantic, Vice Sports, and Sports Illustrated. Weezy is a six-time Emmy Award-winning writer-producer of sports documentaries, and John is the author of historical crime novels. They are married and live in the beautiful borough of Brooklyn. And uh, before we get uh, going with John and Weezy, we also have a special roundtable guest tonight, live from Philadelphia, actually live in New York from Philadelphia, uh, Mitch Nathanson, another great clubhouse alum. So thank you for making the trip, Mitch. I'm glad it worked out time-wise. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> and for those of you who may not know, Mitch is a professor of law at Villanova University and the author of numerous books and articles on baseball, including God Almighty Himself, which was another great evening in the clubhouse. Mitch is a two-time winner of the McFarland Sabre Award. In the spring of 2020, his next book, Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original, will be released. I hope Mitch will be back for a, a Clubhouse podcast for that, and maybe we can flip it and John and Weezy will be the round table. Yeah, that would be great. That sounds great. All right, so we have about a, a date in about a year or so, <laughs> okay. maybe a little less. Uh, and before, before we get going into the book, I just want to thank our sponsors, Sauce Pizzeria and St. Mark's Wine and Liquor. We're enjoying uh, both of them at the moment. Uh, just to get us going, uh, for those of you who, who are kind of wondering about the title of the book, uh, so A, this is a young adult book, uh, and B, it obviously doesn't have much to do about baseball, uh, other than there's a great illustration of the fact, I love this, of Yankee Stadium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I do have to say, I have not read a young adult book in about uh, 50 years or so. <laughs> I think there's a whole new market, it dawned on me. It says great, like, large t font, Mm -hmm. and typeface. It's very easy to read. I found this book fascinating uh, from start to finish. I learned a ton. And I think so. Maybe there's like some mix of young adult books and like old man books or something. I don't know what it is. But, uh, there's, uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was fascinating. Oh, great. And just to get us going, as we usually do, if you could, John and or Weezy, if you could just let us know how this book came about. Well, actually, our agent, uh, Jennifer Welts, was sitting down with one of the editors at Macmillan, uh, uh, Roy Book Press is an imprint of Macmillan, and he had the idea and said, I'm, I'm thinking that the Joe Lewis Schmeling fight would be a great topic for young people because it's a great way to teach about World War II, it's a great way to teach about racism in America through the lens of something that was a really interesting, exciting event, a sporting event. So uh, Jennifer thought of us because we had written One Nation, uh, I'm sorry, One Punch from the Promised Land about the Space Brothers and, and had written a couple of other articles on boxing. So she said, you know, I think you should meet John and Weezy. 
And the three of us sat down, and as we were talking, we realized this feels like a good fit. We'd really like to write the book. So we had never written Young Adult before. This is our first Young Adult book, which is what made that meeting so faithful, because really nobody at that point would have thought of us for Young Adults, but our agent did, and it ended up working out. But that said, I'm going to let Weezy take it, because Weezy has a history with the story too, right? Well, I remember asking the editor, because we'd never written for Young Adult, and I said, um, what is the difference? What's the, what's the main difference between writing for a young adult, which in this case is 11 to 14 years old, and adult? And he said, um, length. Length, <laughs> really? Yeah, and I said, length? I said, what about language? And he said, don't ever write down to, to um, middle schoolers. Just write as you would write for an adult. But obviously, the biggest issue is the book is going to be half the length of an adult book. So it's what to leave out, you know? And that's, that, that became our challenge. And that was a real, that was the conversation from the first word to the last word, is do we include this part? How deep do we go into the, Obviously, the main story of Smelling and Melissa that we're going to go into, but you know, that backstory of uh, how much about Hitler are we going to talk about? How much about America? How much about the racism in America? All of the issues that were surrounding the fight you want to give enough that you're teaching about it, because the, the, those readers might not know about it, and enough to frame the story, but not so much that you're launching into yet an, a second story. Right. So you know you try to keep the story contained. But actually, when I when I said Weezy had a history with the story, I also meant uh, that you produced and co-produced and wrote uh, Joe Lewis, America's Hero Betrayed for HBO. So there right. was another connection to the story. So you came into it knowing really more than I did, too. I mean, I, I knew it through working with you on that, but that was your project. We, uh, you had some more history with the story, so when we started writing it, you were bringing your own previous knowledge to it. Yeah, that's true. And one of the big, one of the big things in the, in the HBO documentary was to cover how the, um, the Internal Revenue Service went after Joe Lewis for, for um, back pay, back earnings, and um, they, they they just hounded him relentlessly, you know, for over a million dollars that he didn't have. He didn't have this money, but he had fought, and he had fought during the war, and he had donated his purse to the army, and now the government wanted the wanted the money, and there wasn't any money to be had, and they hounded him for years and years, and it actually wasn't until um, he had married a woman who, I think she was the first African American um, lawyer to pass the bar in California. And she negotiated with the IRS to finally, you know, get them off his back. Right. And um, but that was a big part of the documentary that we were that we were uh, doing for. See, HBO. and that's an example of writing for young adults because because we talk about that in the yeah. But like we tell right. the full story, but you can't really go into the intricacies of how that weird legal stuff worked out. Like at one point, uh, they actually were hounding Joe Lewis for money. That he, uh, that he had done some benefits to raise money for the war, but he didn't pay tax on that money. He gave it to the government, and they were coming after him for tax on that money that he had given the government. They were like, well, you have to pay the government on that money. Like, I, he, this is completely out of his realm of understanding. Right. So, you know, that's something that we would summarize. We talk about it, whereas in a documentary for adults, you're going to dive more deeply. Right. You, know? you know, but the other thing is, um, Joe Lewis came to a very bad end, and we didn't want to shy away from that. And even, right. even in writing to middle schoolers, because um, we wouldn't be telling the story fairly if we if we left it out. Yeah. And also, 
you know, the great irony of how Max Schmeling ended up becoming wealthy off of Coca-Cola, you know, this quintessential American company, and Joe Lewis, who yeah, was... Yeah, Schmeling had been vilified, for, for people who don't know the story, Schmeling had been vilified through all those years as a Nazi because he was from Germany. This is the advent of World War II, and it becomes really America versus the Nazis, the big second fight that the two of them had. And then at the end of their career, you know, Lewis, after doing all of this for America and for his race and, for, and, and really becoming an American icon, is hounded by the American government and Schmeling ends up becoming rich selling Coca-Cola, an American product. It's, it's interesting, you know. But it would be unfair, like you said, it would be unfair not to tell a young person that part of the story. That's part of the story. There's, there's, there's lessons through all of this. You oh, know? absolutely. I, I, didn't know, I didn't know any of this. I mean, I'm not, I know much more about baseball history than I do about boxing history. Uh, I enjoy boxing, but I don't know it in depth. And I had no idea what happened to Joe Lewis or Matt Schmeling. And it was so sad to me as you recount what happened to him in the book. And I picked up enough to understand uh, really the financial straits that he was in. And then that irony of Max Schmeling becoming extremely wealthy due to Coca-Cola mm -hmm. and, uh, and also being healthy. This healthy guy, Joe Lewis, who was, there, there are two stories that were so, it was just uh, sad. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it's interesting with Mitch because I think a lot of people enjoy what happens to those guys after they're done. And a lot of times you don't know. And, and you're working on this book about Jim Bowden. And, you know, what happened? I mean, now people know because he recently passed away. They know his end. But, like, oh, yeah, what happened to that guy after he stopped pitching for the Yankees? You know? There's so many shades of gray in this story it, it, with, with Schmeling and, and Joe Lewis. I was surprised that this was going to be a young adult book because it's like you can make it, it's hard, I would think it'd be really hard to get all that in. You know what I'm saying? Like how do you yeah. get all the shades of gray in and make it a story that doesn't become the story that was this narrative that was sold half a century ago or more than 70 years ago, 80 years ago. So how do you do that? That was yeah. um, tricky. <laughs> we spent a lot of time, for, you know, I mean, we, we have this big, huge um, board, cork board in the, yeah. in the office. And we have all the little um, posted, the posted posted everywhere. I'd like to say it's I'll, like a real big framed cork board, but it's actually a piece of foam cork <laughs> taped with packing tape to a bookcase. <laughs> and you know, literally, it, it, it sounds much more beautiful. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah. And we have, we have tons of post-its, and yeah. we're constantly removing a post-it, changing a post-it, Okay, let's make chapter two, chapter seven. Let's make chapter seven, chapter five. Let's move this to that. Let's, and all those gray areas that you want so much to keep in, it's just well, keep one, juggling. And one example of that, um, I don't know if you've run into this with any of your books, uh, Mitch, but we started out saying, well, look, let's just tell the story from start to finish and, and let the, the chips fall where they do. And we wrote the whole thing according to a timeline. And then after we were finished, we were talking about it with our editor over at Roaring Board, Kate Jacobs, and she looks at it and says, you know, this is really Joe Lewis's story. As much as you're, being, you're giving each equal time and telling both their stories, ultimately, Lewis wins the big fight. It's really kind of Joe Lewis's story. We think you should take the beginning of the Joe Lewis story and start the book with that, because you want to start out with the person who's really the story it is. But Schmeling was older than Lewis. Schmeling's ascent came before that. So we had to flip a couple of uh, chapters to accommodate that arc. 
So we have a couple of chapters that are not exactly according to the timeline, and then it became a little, we had to uh, finesse, how do we make this read smoothly? And I think we did a fine job with it, but that was one change where you can't just tell the story straight, you know, because that's not, you can't tell the events in the timeline in a straight necklace. To tell the story, sometimes you have to move things around, if not the timeline, certain things, just to tell the story the way it should be told today, as opposed to the way it really happened. Yeah, I had, I had that with the Batten book, too. Like, yeah. I, I, I was going to, I had the exact same, I was shaking my head as you were saying that, because mm-hmm. it was the exact same thing. I was going to start from the beginning, here's when he's born, here's this, here's this, here's this, and then I realized when I got done with the draft that, well, A, it was boring. <laughs> and B, it really missed the point, and I ended up shuffling everything around. Right. And at the and at the end, I guess well, at least where I am now, it starts really after Balfour comes out, which is you know where initially that was you know halfway in, and I yeah. realized, well, no, actually the story where I want to tell starts there, and 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 does, and then you kind of work your way back and forward. And, so you're kind of working, it's like a mushroom, you kind of explode outwards as opposed to start here and move forward. So yeah. I right, have, right. And wouldn't thing. it be easy if it were life to death? It would be so, it would make the job of, of how this story is going to be told because it's straight. You know, everything just, you, get a, you have a calendar and there you have your chapters. But when you decide, well, this is the story we want to tell, and to Mitch's point about the uh, taking those gray areas, concentrating on some of those, you start pushing and pulling, and it's never just the straight events as they fall, because that doesn't let shine the light on the certain parts of the story right. that are the important ones to the way you want to explain the things that happen. Well, we had one. We had one big issue. Speaking of gray areas, about how to deal with Matt oh, Schmeller, whether yeah. he was in fact a Nazi yeah. or whether he I was talk about that. Yeah. right. So, oh, we really struggled with it. I mean, um, we. Got our hands on. We got our hands on. Uh, he had he had written three autobiographies. We got our hands on one because it had been translated into English, and um, read everything we could and talked to a lot of people. And we just came to the conclusion that there's no definitive conclusion. It's really hard to tell. He never became <clears throat> an official member of the Nazi Party. Um, but then, you know, there's always another side to that, which is, well, Hitler never wanted him to join the Nazi Party because he didn't want people around the world to think that he was a member of the party. Um, and, but then he did Hitler's bidding for him um, for the Olympics, right. for the 1936 Six Olympics, Olympics yeah. um, when America was going to pull out. And he came to America and he talked to Avery Brundage, I right. think it was, and convinced them that... Um, Hitler asked him, said, could you go back Avery Brundage convince him that the Olympics should be in Munich, and uh, Schmeling did that, uh, kind of as Berlin. a uh, Berlin. I'm sorry, um, kind of as a thank you or in reciprocity of Hitler having allowed him to keep his Jewish manager Joe Jacobs. So he's in with Hitler, and you know the the uh, the Olympics going there in '36 was an opportunity for Hitler to scrub all of the anti-Semitic. Uh, placards that were up, like make everything look like there's nothing wrong going on here, look at this. So he had his uh, an ulterior motive, Hitler, for having the Olympics there, or what he was going to do when everybody was coming to Germany, and Schmeling was a part of that. And Schmeling liked the accolades that he got from Hitler. Yeah. You know, he was the toast of the town after he beat um, Lewis in the first fight. He came home, he was a national hero, and, um, he, and he, 
he never shied away from that. In fact, he kind of laughed it off. And then he was he was public enemy number one when he lost the second fight. And Hitler in didn't Germany. want it. Right, public enemy in, number in, one yeah, in Germany. in Germany. Yeah. And Hitler didn't want anything to do with him. But we really struggled with how to portray him. And I think the way we politics. ended up solving it, you know, we originally just put things. This is this is a question for Mitch. Maybe you've run into this too. This is becoming like a how-to on the craft <laughs> of writing like biography. It's fascinating. Like, well, yeah. You know, we were just putting the facts down and letting the facts speak for themselves. And we gave in our first pass and we're speaking with the editor and uh, she said, you know, I, don't, I can't get a handle on whether Schmeling's a, a Nazi or not. I said, well, we don't know. Like, we put down the facts. We don't. And sometimes you have to give your own opinion. And that's something that when we did uh, One Punch from the Promised Land, we very much had our own voice and our own opinion shining a light on that. With One Nation Under Baseball, we kind of removed that and we just let the facts speak for themselves. Here, we had to kind of pick our moments and step in as an author because it's a young adult and you're just leaving the facts and it needed a little more than the facts for a young adult reader. And we would kind of say, it, sh it, it sure seemed, this sure made it seem like Schmeling was, if not a Nazi, on board with the Nazi party because he did X, Y, and Z. But when he was asked about it, this is what he said. But on so the other hand, yeah. he had a Jewish manager and he wasn't about... And, but and also hid two Jewish uh, yeah, boys. Yeah, talk about the Lewin family. Yes, exactly. Book, which, you know, I didn't know any of this. Uh, unfortunately, I'm somewhat knowledgeable about the Holocaust, uh, but I had no idea, you know, his manager, Joe Jacobs, mm -hmm. Yussel. You can't get much more Jewish yeah. other than Goldberg. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, and the, these two boys in this Lewin family, I, I mean, as Mitch said, there's about shades of gray in general. Mm. I mean, this was like really a deep gray. It, yeah. a, a lot of this. It, it was. So, it, I found that. Yeah, Kristallnacht the when the part. when the Germans were on the streets looking and rounding up uh, Jewish uh, Jewish families and looting Jewish and stores. Louis, looting Jewish stores. He took in these two kids and hid them, and they would have. He would have killed. I mean, he he risked his life to do that. And the other thing is, even after the war, and and. It, he never, ever, ever spoke about it. He was out of favor by then, though, wasn't he? He had already lost. He had. But, he, yeah. I mean, according to the two boys um, who ended up in America and um, have, you know, spoken about it, they, they think, in their, in their mind, he risked his life for them. Um, you know, yeah. whether that's true or not, I think he, Well, really according knows. to the story, he never spoke about it, but according to the yeah. story they present, it's true. But I want to ask Mitch, because this is an opportunity. We don't get to sit around with other authors and ask them, you know. Did you run into this with Boughton or with the Dick Allen book, where you're saying, you know, the facts aren't doing the job. I have to start saying what I think. Or do you do that freely when you write? Or, um, Well, it's funny, you know. I, I actually have one story that ended up in the Boughton book about, um, I won't get too much into it, but um, there was one person that Boughton dealt with um, when it came to um, that Wakona Park stuff, mm -hmm. um, it was actually an editor, um, uh, Public Affairs, EIC at Public Affairs, um, who had a falling out with Bowden. And I, I wanted his, his take on it. And he asked me that question, like, are you, you, know, are you gonna give your opinion or are you just gonna present the facts? Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I said, well, you know, I'm gonna present the facts. And like you said, they fall where they fall. And, and he said, Oh, nobody wants to hear that. 
Nobody wants to hear that. I can tell you that. I, you know, I, I mean, you know, uh, or he's, a, he's, I don't know, editor emeritus at Public Affairs at this point. But nobody wants that. They want to know what you think. And I was like, well, you know, I, th I think you're, you know, I said, all right, I think you're full of crap. That's what I think. <laughs> and, um, and, and I guess that's what I would say. And, right. um, <laughs> and, and so anyway, that kind of, we didn't get along, me and this guy, but um, but I did. I do find. Doesn't sound yeah, it. I, 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 I do say though that in retrospect, he he was really helpful because he kind of said to me, "Don't feel bad about taking a position, because you can take a position, and people will hope you take a position. You know, you don't want to tip the scales, but you want to take a position. Here's the facts, and here's how I feel about them. And so, yeah, even though we, at the end of the day, I don't think he was my biggest fan. Um, and I'm not his biggest fan. I do think that he performed for me a good service because he kind of said, you know, it's okay. You, you can, right. you can, you can tell the reader where you stand. And um, so I, I, I have to yeah. say, I have a lot of respect for him for that. For you know. For that yeah, and, and and that's a decision that usually you make. Going, we almost always go in thinking we're not going to give an opinion, but then as as we start doing the story, you say, you know, the story isn't coming out. The the light. We put the facts on the paper, and the way it's coming out, it needs another light on it because the story's not coming out without us, you know, although sometimes, pointing to certain things. Yeah. Although sometimes, when you present the facts and and the events that happen, it becomes obvious. Yeah. Sort of. Oh, right. and that's a beautiful thing when that happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I remember yeah. writing about Leon Spinks, and he was, um, you know, he was so self-destructive. I don't think we really needed to say it. Oh, no, that was just was, a pile-on if you get on it at that point. Yeah. yeah. It was just so obvious how he was destroying himself. Yeah, that was that was tough to watch because he was actually a, a nice guy, nice person, uh, but he was in his own way. And it's also a choice as to what you leave in and, and what you take exactly. out, right? I mean, right. just by that decision. Exactly. It, that decision it, alone. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right, right. That, that's going to yeah. tell, that's going to, yeah. that you know, that will weigh the scales one way or the other. Now, mm -hmm. did you, uh, with Dick Allen, who was a, uh, fascinating person as well. Did you have those type of issues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I felt, you know, the, the thing with Alan was that, um, you know, when I was writing the book, he didn't want to talk to me. Um, it's funny, after the book came out, he contacted me, and now he, and then he wanted to talk. I was like, well, it's too late. What do you want me to do? Um, but, um, but I was going to ask if you got him, but I was going to wait till after the podcast. No, but I'm a very tough guy. He is a tough guy, and, and, and so he wanted to see what you wrote first, and then he did. Yeah, yeah. then he had to decide if he'll speak. Right, and so <laughs> right after he reads it, right. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny because he reached out to me after the book came out, and he was open, and and I was, you know, I was like, well, this is great, but what am I going to do with this? I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Right, but um. So, you know, with Alan, I felt like, you know, he didn't talk to me, so it was hard to get, you know, if we're going to tell you who this side versus that side, I didn't know his side, because he, he, you know, other people would speak for him. Um, and so, you know, you just take the, you take the information as, as you get it, and you hope that you present it fairly. Um, I, I hope I did that. Um, he didn't, you know, after the fact, he, I asked him if he liked the book, and he's, he said something like, I won't say I liked it, but I will say there's nothing in there that's wrong. So I was like, well, that's okay. I'll take that. Yeah, that's yeah. That's that is a, that yeah. Is a nice compliment. So, so, I don't know yeah. if he meant it as a compliment. Yeah. It, it is one. It, it's definitely a compliment. Yeah. No, it's, it's actually, I mean, with the Schmilling, which I found fascinating, this whole part of the book, and I, it's funny because I lost myself as I was reading it. I, I, at some points, I'm like, all right, it's for a young reader. 
then I just like lost that. I'm like, all right, I'm reading this book. I'm into it. You know, I'm 59 years old, and I'm not 12. And, uh, but that's a very tough. I thought you handled that really well. I mean, that's it's one thing to say, oh, he was kind of a schmuck, or he was this or that, or whatever. he was a womanizer, like Joe Lewis, whatever. He was a womanizer, blah blah blah. It's another thing to say he was a Nazi. You know, right, yeah, like that's that. a hard, it's yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a heavy label, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, officially a Nazi, you know, and uh, so I just thought, yeah, that you handled that great really well, and the reader gets to decide for themselves, or, mm -hmm. or then they want to learn more about Max Miller. Great, I'm glad you know? feel that way. I mean, that's what we were aiming yeah. for, really. And really, there's no reason adults can't enjoy the book. I mean, uh, the fact that it's for young adult makes it shorter. It's about a, I don't even know what it is, about 150 pages or something. But something So like it's shorter that, yeah. than a regular book, uh, than, a, than a book written for adults. But was it Ken Jennings? Who's the guy who was no, on Jeopardy? No, the, the more recent the more recent Yeah, Ken Jennings of, is the older one. The, the more the, recent the winner of Jeopardy, who oh, won, uh, did he set a record? Yeah, I forget his name. Yeah. Uh, he said he, he relied on young, on young he read young, books. young adult literature. Really? He read all young adult literature, and that's how he boned up on all the information, because the information's in there, but it's condensed, and you don't, you know, <laughs> it's short, yeah. You know, actually, it's funny, because I, I wanted to ask you about this. When I, you know, the book is all finished, I'm reading the book, and then I get to the sources, and it's funny because in the clubhouse we used to have guys who, you know, in the crowd, and sometimes they were, how come there's no index? Where's the index? I can't, you know, why isn't there an index? How come there's no footnotes? How come there's this, you know? So now there's this young adult book, you know, and now I'm like looking and there's extensive sources. This is, and I'm like, they would love this in the clubhouse. There's sources, <laughs> there's an index, there's all, you know, everything is right here. I, I love reading through the sources, you know? I mean, it's, yeah. To me, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but to me it sounds like, let's say this was not a young adult book. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before about the length and, you know, certain things you have to change the way you write it, maybe, mm -hmm. but did you, as far as the amount of research that you did, let's say this was an adult book, would, would there have been any more research? It seemed to me you did extensive research. That is such a good question because the answer is no. There would not have been any more research. We researched the hell out of this subject and um, I know and your writings and it's so compressed and condensed but it's the same amount of research that goes into it just because the book is shorter doesn't mean that the research is is minimal you know so it's just so as I, much I, that brings up a question now uh, well Mitch won't have an answer to this but he may have some other opinion since he hasn't written a young adult book yet although maybe now that I you know that maybe it's coming you know <laughs> uh, so you do the same amount of research. This is kind of a process question, but I, I think it's interesting. You do the same amount of research as if you were doing the same book. Does it then become more difficult to write this book as a young adult book compared to... If, if, you know, it's funny, because <laughs> what I'm thinking, you may be thinking the same thing. I'm looking at Wheezy when I say that. Um, the way we work is mostly and it's not always like this by any stretch. But Wheezy does the bulk of the research. And then, well, we'll both, we'll both go to that board and figure out how the, how, what story we want to tell. And then Wheezy will do the bulk of the research. I'll do the bulk of the writing. I'll then give Wheezy my writing. She'll edit it, give it back, maybe write some things on her own, give it back to me, and we go back and forth once that's in there. But the bulk of the research is re really Wheezy. The bulk of the writing is really me. So when you ask the first part of the question, 
about was it the same amount of research I just shut up and I let Wheezy speak <laughs> because she's the one who finds the great stories that are in there. But the part about is it tougher to get it into a shorter and for young adult, that would be where I was trying to be much more concise. And yeah, it was a little tougher because what would happen is I'd do it and then Wheezy would say, you know, I got this great story we've got to put in there. And I'd look at it and I'd go, well, you know, you're right. It does belong in there. But where the hell are we going to go? How much are we going to jam in? They said, let's go back to the board. You know, we go back to the board. We figure out where it would go. And then, you know, I would put it in. I'd give it back to Wheezy. She'll work on it. Um, so it goes back and forth. But the amount of research that went into it, as you said, was the same. Because I think the notes and, and structure that Wheezy would give me felt the same. But what I was giving back to her was trimmed much more than it would have been. And also, Do you think, I think that's a good way of Yeah, I also, you know, I, I um, spent many, many years doing sports documentaries um, mm -hmm. for television. Right. So therein, too, you do a ton of research, a ton of research. You interview a million people. And there's only, you only have... An, 60 minutes. You have 60 fixed, minutes, yeah. basically, right. to Hold tell up. the story. So you're, you're, you're battling the same problem um, when you're doing a television documentary. It's just, yeah. you have an enormous amount of material and you have to keep condensing it and you have to figure yeah. out you know what story is representative of something because you can't tell you can't give five different examples of the same story so you've got to figure out which story would be most apt to tell right but if we were writing a book for adults would be more apt or it would be easier for me to accept uh, if you came to me and said we have to cut something. I'd be, it, would, it, was, it was like, I don't want to cut that. I, I love that passage. It's so cool or whatever. And now, on the young adults, when you came back and you said we had to add something, I'd be like, where the hell are we going to put that? You know, it's like a totally different type of, you know, because like you said, young adults, you're aware of like the 60, it's not 60 minutes, but you're aware of the amount of playing field you have to mm -hmm. fill, you know, how much real estate you have to fill. Whereas the other, if it gets longer, it doesn't really matter. You know, all right, let's spend some time on that. You know, we like it. So, you know, you're much more conscious of length. That was the first answer, I think, when Jay asked you today, what's the big difference? You said length. That's the yeah. big thing. You couldn't go in with a 300-page manuscript for, for a young adult. Book. That's interesting. You have a, a young adult book and a, a 60-minute documentary. It's, it's kind of similar. Oh, yeah. Uh, we would. Yeah. We, I can remember just spending so many days, hours in the edit room trying to figure out how are we going to get this to time? How are we going to get this to time? How many stories do we have to lose? Why do we have to lose the story? And then everyone would fight for the stories they want to keep in, and it's, it's just a real struggle. And you know, nobody knows what's on the cutting room floor. Right. Nobody knows what you left out of the story. Yeah. You know, they only know what's in it. So. Right. right. That's always an issue, though. Like you know, even when you're writing another, like just a, a, a typical biography or whatever. Uh -huh. There's so many, I was just looking the other day, I have all my interviews of all these people, many of them never ended up at all in the book. And then others I spoke to for two and a half hours, and there's, there's a, they might have a sentence that's in there. Right. And, yeah. and it's just like, just, there's so many things. Somebody asked me the other day, like, about, um, um, after Bouton died, I, I said, you know, every day I think of another story that I really loved about Bouton that didn't make it in the book. Because you just can't put them all in there. Right. You gotta, you gotta figure out what's representative, what's what, not, what goes. What I, do you I, do with stories? Excuse me, Reese. I'm sorry. What do you do with stories that would be great for the book and you love them, 
but you can't second source them, and you're not exactly sure whether they ever really happen. Somebody gives you a story. You're in an interview. Somebody goes, I'll tell you a great Bouton story. Right. They, they give you a Bouton story. You know it's great. It'll fit in. It works in Chapter 2 perfectly, <laughs> but nobody else says this ever happened. Like, or, well, well, you know, I did spend, I did spend part of... There is a little part of the book which talks about all those stories that people say about what happened after Ball Four came out, which uh -huh. there's no evidence that any of those things happened. Right, right. Um, because, okay. you know, there's like, they become like, you They're know, apocryphal, um, like, yeah, yeah, apocryphal stories, and they, you know, the Yankees, you know, took his, his uniform and they flushed it down the toilet. Bill Mazur used to tell that story all the time. They flushed his uniform down the toilet. And then I, but I spoke to Marty at Palo, who was like, well, well, they wouldn't even have his uniform. You know, why would they have his uniform? He has them play right. for the Yankees. Right. They don't have his uniform, and, and, and that doesn't make any sense, you know? And plus the fact he was there, he's like, that didn't happen. There's no way that happened. But it's a story that you you hear. So if you had, yeah, there's a lot of those stories. That, oh, there's a million you know, that, that, that You just can't, you know, I just, they just don't you make go. it. <laughs> you go, we you went go. into a story when we were writing. Two or three. Well, Beauties. one in particular that I was thinking of, yep. the Willie Horton yeah. story. I was talking when about When we were writing, one Nation, One, under, baseball. One Nation oh, yeah. under Baseball, and we were talking about the riots in Detroit in 1968, or mm -hmm. 67, 68, and um, Willie Horton had said in interviews that he left the clubhouse with his uniform on, and that he went into the city, and he tried to stop the rioting, that he got up on uniform. top of... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in his uniform, yeah. and that he got on top of a car or a truck, yeah. and he tried to quell the, the crowd. And um, that story has been repeated and reported a million different times. I, c I couldn't find one reliable source on it. And um, every time I read about it, it was, almost, it was written almost exactly the same way. Because it all way. sourced back to his telling of the story. Right. And I couldn't find, and I couldn't find any witnesses. I couldn't find any photographs. I couldn't find any... Uh, you know, police to corroborate. I couldn't find anyone to corroborate. No the story. newspaper accounts, no photos. People, there were photos all over of those riots, but there's nothing of Willie Hort. Now, it's not. We're not saying that he it didn't happen. We're not saying the guy's a liar, but we couldn't. So nobody else, other than Willie Horton or somebody repeating Willie Horton saying it, could uh, would would corroborate that it happened. Nobody. But it saw was it. in a documentary that HBO had done, and we called. And I called the producer of the documentary, right. and I said, "I'm just um, wondering what your source was for that." And he said, um, "Yeah, I think um, it was one of the clubhouse guys that saw him leaving the the clubhouse with his uniform on." And I said, "But how would that corroborate? How do they know he where had, he went? Yeah. How do they know where he went? Right." And he said. Um, yeah, I'm gonna check my. Um, I'm gonna. I, I, got, I have all my uh, my interview notes. notes and materials in my garage. I'll check on that. He never got back to me. So. Um, yeah. I remember asking about. I, I, we couldn't uh, go with the story. No, I couldn't go with it. Hated to leave it out. What, one I second. I have to say that very... story's been repeated so many times. When we'd signed to do the book, I said to Weezy, I had it in my head that I saw it myself. I said, you know what? I said we should use that photo on the cover of the book. And she goes, yeah, I think I saw that photo. I go, absolutely. He's on the roof of the car. He's on the hood of the car. He's in his uniform. What a fantastic photo! And then we realized, not only did I never see the photo, I don't even know that it ever happened. You know, this is fascinating because I'm, I'm working. <laughs> I'm on sorry, this, but uh, I'll, I'll get there. Yeah. I'll get to you, Mitch. Yeah. But this is just, this is fascinating. I'm working on a project now about this multimedia project about people's memories of their first baseball games. <laughs> so I have this like parallel track called uh, the Scholars, which is. Psychologists, sociologists, theologians, 
historian. She's talking about memory in general. Like, mm -hmm. why? Why do people remember that first baseball game? Like, why? Did they, like, the why? Mm -hmm. When you're telling a story, I remember your book One Nation Under ba Baseball from the clubhouse, mm -hmm. which I love. I could swear the story was in the book. <laughs> I, 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 I could swear I read it a million other times, and I could swear I saw Willie Horton in a uniform doing this. Right. That's my memory. Yeah. Right. And the scholars in my project would talk about certainly like why that happens, uh -huh. you know, with memory. But I am convinced I, I it's 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 in your book, and I saw it in your. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. That's how I, it's, it's fascinating. I know what you're going to say, the Janice Ian story. Yeah, there was another story. Um, Janice Ian uh, was a singer, songwriter. She had a hit to Sex Child. Yeah, 17. Yeah, 17. Yeah, yeah. Before that, in 68, right. what year? 66. What year did the, the Braves go to Atlanta? 66. 66. 66. So we're talking about the Braves going to Atlanta. And Henry Aaron not wanting to go. And that was a big deal. They had to get Aaron to agree, or they wanted to get Aaron to agree, so that, you know, they wanted to make Atlanta this integrated city. And it, one of the things that would legitimize it is having this baseball team come, right? So we read that when Janice Ian came out with the song Society's Child, if you remember the song, it's about a young kid who's in high school who's dating a black student. A white girl is singing, dating a black student, and the parents say, no, it can't be. And the teachers say, no, this shouldn't be. And in the end of the song, she says, uh, she gives in and says, okay, we can't date anymore, but you know, I wish, it, I wish that it was 30 years from now so we could be together. So for singing the song, where even though in the, in, the, in the song they don't even get together, she received such a backlash that they were boycotting the song, radio stations. But the story is that in Atlanta, now this would have been the same time, right. they burned a radio station down for playing it. So we're saying, what better way to set up, you know, them, uh, the, uh, Martin Luther King and Andrew Young coming in to, re to create a new Atlanta at the, before. Janice Ian has the song, they burned down the radio station. We can't find it anywhere. We, go, we went through every paper, every Atlanta paper looked at every single issue. It wasn't in there. And it, then we realized, you know, everybody who tells this story, like you said about Willie Horton, it's worded the same way. They were all taking it from Janice Ian's autobiography. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying she's a liar. What I think probably happened is she was only 16 years old right. when that song came out. Oh, wow. So it's very possible somebody told her when she was 16, you know, they burned down a station in Atlanta. And they might have burned down a station anywhere else. I mean, we didn't go through every city right. every day. We went through Atlanta. That's what we needed. Right. So it might have been Cincinnati. And she heard Atlanta. But the story is it happened in Atlanta. And, and it never happened in that year because we went through every single paper. And it certainly would have been covered in it, you know. So that's another one we had it's to let go. Yeah, yeah. You, you had one. You said. Well, I was just going to say that like there was one, and I don't remember what it was, but there was some story about, I don't know, a ball four story, something like that. And, and I asked Bouton if it had happened. And he, this is how self-aware he was. He says, you know, I remember it, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I remember it just because it happened or, or I remember it because I remember telling it. So uh, he says, wow. I can't tell you that it happened. I just remember telling the story that it happened. And so I don't, re I don't know if I remember the event. I remember telling the story. But I can't tell you if that happened. Well, you know, that's a testament so, to how uh, smart and open Bouton right. was. 
because, you know, first of all, a lot of guys wouldn't even, a lot of people wouldn't even recognize that that was happening in their own mind. And if they did, they wouldn't admit it anyway. Bowden was like refreshingly an open guy, wasn't he? Didn't oh, yeah. 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 I mean, he would always, yeah, he was, he, he was very open, very honest. And, um, Disarmingly so, right? Yeah, <laughs> at times, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, But um, yeah, it was. It, it, he, I thought that was really interesting because I thought I would hear this happened or it didn't happen. But he was just like, I gotta be honest with you. That was half a century ago, and I've told that story now so many times. I can't tell you if I remember the story or the event. Well, Jay, yeah. I can't imagine the stories you're running into when you're doing this multimedia thing about people's memories of their first baseball game. You must be running into all kinds of things. Yeah, it's interesting because I spoke, I, I audited a course actually at the new school with this, uh, he's the co-chair of the psychology department. I wrote him a, an email. He's, a, he's one of the leading memory experts in the country. And I wrote him an email and I said, I'm doing this project, can I audit the course? He wrote back right away, so I assumed he was a baseball fan. As it turns out, he hates baseball. <laughs> uh, but, but, it was but he remembers liking it. Yeah. <laughs> But it was fascinating, and just the whole uh, the study, like all the what you what all of you have just spoken about from memory, it's just it's fascinating, and the fact that Bowden actually said that mm. is really unique because most people, and I'm still just getting a handle on this. It became, the way I got to this kind of parallel track was that the project was feeling too. I was feeling overwhelmed because I was finding everybody remembers that first baseball game and everybody wants to just tell, tell me about it. I'm like, how am I going to deal with all these 300 million people who want to tell me about this? Mm -hmm. you know? So I kind of went to the other track which made the project much broader and deeper. And it's, uh, memory is a, is a fascinating thing, it really is. And what people remember, they don't, most people do not remember and I, I, actually, it's going to take us into 1938 right now, something I, I researched about, uh, which was the Louis Schmeling second fight. And most people do not remember what happened at the game, their first game, on the field. Oh, yeah, Derek Jeter had, had two singles. He made a great play, and he stole the base. I'm like, all right, thank you very much. It's not interesting other than the Derek Jeter. Mm -hmm. The reality is nobody remembers that. In, in real, in, in, you know, like how Bowden said it, I don't know if it's really, I remember saying this, but, you know, and if you're eight years old, you don't remember that. You went to the internet and you looked it up. Uh -huh. So it's all these other stories about everything else, and as I always say, the project has nothing to do about, it's not about baseball. It's about everything else except baseball, which is kind of what makes it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure... So what do they remember? Who they were with? They always remember who they were with. Yeah. Which is and where they were sitting, maybe? Or? A lot of them remember where they were sitting. They remember sensory type things. Yeah. Seeing the field for the first time, yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah. Seeing the field, the, the smells, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 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 noises, th things like that. Uh, but they do always remember who they were with. And it's kind of dangerous now because it's so easy to look up any single game mm -hmm. that people can kind of look up and they, maybe that wasn't even the game they went to, but they're convinced, oh, happy June 7th, you know, yeah. 1968, that was the game. And then they look it up and they realize, oh, I thought it was, you know, I 
was at County Mac Stadium, and Phillies were in Cincinnati. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now they have to like change the whole story. You know? Well, you know uh, that happens. We were we interviewed Mudcat Grant, and he told us that he met with uh, Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy. And Kennedy had breakfast with him, and he, go, he has yeah. a whole story, blah, 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 blah. Then Kennedy that. called him to the White House, yeah. and they met at the White House. So we said, well, we have to check this. You know, right. we, you know. So we, we look into it, and the best we could put together, and, and by the way, there was a shot of Kennedy and Mudcat Grant together. So right. we know some meeting happens. Right. Mudcat Grant's not pulling this out of the air. But we're looking into it, and we're going, it can't be, it can't be. We finally figured out it must have happened when Kennedy was a senator. We had both their schedules because Mudcat Grant was on Cleveland, and it was in Detroit that they It met. was the day that, that um, Kennedy, was Kennedy announced Square. his presidency, right. his uh, so campaign. So we figured the whole president. thing out. They were in the hotel at the same time. It had to be this date. He must have been a senator, blah, blah, blah. But then he says, Kennedy called me to the White House. I met with Kennedy at the White House. And... Um, they have meticulous records. Kennedy, in particular, had meticulous records of everybody he met at the White House every single day that he was president. And then Mudcat Grant's not on the list. We had the librarians going crazy. Now, he might have met Mudcat right. Grant again, but we couldn't use the second part of that story. But we knew we could confirm the first part of it, and we were able to put together, okay, well, Kennedy was there at that day. He was in that hotel. Mudcat Grant was there that day. He was on the team. They, he was in that hotel. There's a photo of the two of them together. It might have been there. That must have been exactly how it happened. So we actually took Mudcat Grant's recollection, which was somewhat true. But like you say, it, I thought it was this game, but it might have been. It, must, it was really this game. And, right. and he put it together in his memory. But I think his memory was. It couldn't have been. They weren't in the same state at the same time. But right. they were when he when Kennedy was a senator announcing his his run. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We called yeah. the we called the, um, the White House Kennedy I mean, yeah. Library. Yeah. Yeah. And those librarians they. They, they, he had the most meticulous. Um, he had, he had diary the, of like a diary of every single minute of every single day. Um, so, yeah. you know, if Kennedy was having affairs, um, well, that wasn't going to be. Yeah. That wasn't going to be noted. Maybe it was yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Maybe. Now. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to get into this about baseball in 1938, something on that date. But I just want to check something for, I, I assume, I'm just guessing here, you tell me if I'm wrong. I assume Mitch likes baseball more than boxing? Yeah, I'm baseball number one. All right, me, yeah. me too. Uh, so now you've written a book about boxing. Well, it's about more, all these books are not about well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm probably, as an avid fan, I like watching baseball the most. But we just love, I could speak for Weezy on this, we just love great stories. You know, <laughs> baseball, boxing, no sports. A great story is a great story, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you, uh, so you have the Sphinx book. You've done other documentaries. Are, do you, like, watch boxing now? Or? Um, no, I'm not a boxing fan, but I have to tell you, I, I've, I've worked on a lot of boxing documentaries. Um, when I worked at Classic Sports, and then it became ESPN. Right. Um, I ended up, and then I worked on. Um, I was one of the producers on the um, Sports Century series, and oh. so we did. We ended up, my producing partner and I ended up doing a lot of boxing documentaries, and so I came to love the characters in the sport, you know, more than the sport itself. And I have to tell you, if you're ever looking for great sports stories. Oh yeah, the boxing, boxing is just yeah. so the, full the characters. Of them. That, yeah. yeah, but also, as a historian of twentieth century 
America, of the culture. The heavyweight champion of the world yeah. meant a lot in the 20th century, way more than it did now. So, I mean, if you're going to tell a story about boxing, you're telling a story about American society, like, you know, uh, Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, these champs, that, you know, Jack Dempsey, uh, you know, they all had stood for something different at different times of, of our culture. Our economy was up and down during the Depression. These people stood for something. Yeah, I yeah. think it was Red Smith. It might have been a different columnist, but I think it was Red Smith who once said, the heavyweight champion of the world is uh, the strongest and most important man in America. You know, I mean, that's yeah. how people saw it. Right. But, you know, this is probably and, and, not and the constituency, the, the, the yeah. groups yeah. that projected, yeah, that they stood Ali. for, the way they... they uh, they would project on, you know, there was uh, the black champion, but it was all like I different immigrants with, you know, Italians were big for Irish, then black. And, and it's not as African-American now, the sport, really. It's more Hispanic. Now it's all European, too. Well, Russian, there yeah, were, Russian. you know, the, the Klitschko's, right. they started to... It tells a lot about where society's at, especially in the 20th century when there was really one champ, and it's not like it is now, but it was... It, it, it meant a lot back then, like Muhammad Ali being the champ, or Sonny Liston, you know, the, you know. You know, I'm not a fan of the sport, and I, you know, I mean, it's so obviously dangerous and everything, but I do admire what these guys do to get themselves into the ring, you know. I mean, it's, they go in there with the fear of God, you know, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, mm -hmm. Especially the heavyweights, because the heavyweights really don't know what's going to happen to them. Well, as we cover in the in One Punch from the Promised Land, Michael, Michael Spinks didn't want to get in the ring against Tyson. There was a big delay before the fight. They said it was a problem with the raps, but Michael Spinks was just, you know, and, and I don't blame him at all. I don't, he I mean, got knocked out right away. Yes, yeah. right away, and yeah. he just didn't want to leave the drink. He didn't want to go out there. He did, he was he's like, I, I, no, call the fight off. I'm not getting in the ring he was He was in the dressing room cowering. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was terrified. And, and that's not to say that the man's seconds. a coward by any means. No, no. He's smart, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> saying he's intelligent. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, he was smart enough to retire after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, now, as, based on what you just said, it's interesting because this was in the book. I was, I was floored by this. Uh, about where boxing and baseball were in the 20th century at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you mentioned this in the book. Dempsey beats... Furpo, is it Louis or Louis? Yeah, Louis Furpo. Yeah, Louis, Furpo. Louis, Louis Furpo at the Polo Grounds in 1923. Babe Ruth was the highest paid player in baseball at the time, as he should have been. Uh, he made $52,000 a year, which obviously was this a, nice a lot amount. of money. Yeah. He's the highest paid player. Dempsey made nearly $500,000 wow. right. for the fight. Yeah. yeah. And we purposely uh, put that there to give. But we would have done it anyway with an adult, but for a young adult, like what is five, if we told you $500,000, if you tell a young adult $50,000, it sounds like a fortune. I mean, and, and you know, I'll take $50,000 now too, but to give an idea of how much 500000 was, what could they compare it to? Yeah. The well, salary that Babe Ruth was making, right? I mean, what else are you going to, you know, what bigger icon was there than Ruth at the time? You, you, uh... And meanwhile, there was a bigger icon. Jack Dempsey. Right. Well, no, yeah, but the point is, if you want to compare Dempsey's salary to somebody's, I know, but people looking back. Oh, I see what you mean. Like, what Babe a bigger, Ruth right. was the was the biggest. Right, which amount. also gives an idea of how big Dempsey was. If yeah. Babe Ruth was, that's ten times the amount of money. 
So, you know, the presumption is 10 times the amount of fame and, re and reputation and, you know, reach. Yeah, and it's interesting because I want to get all of the, uh, all three of you, I want to get your thoughts about this because uh, obviously you all love baseball in different ways. But, uh, you know, at one point in the 20th century, basically the three sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball. Mm -hmm. Horse racing is having ton of its own issues, especially, well, it's been on the downside anyway, but yeah. now with the, all the deaths of horses, they're really having problems. Boxing is also having a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. Baseball is having different types of issues. Uh, so I want to get into that, get your thoughts on that, but first I just want to say I just did a little of my own research when, since I know most people who listen to this are baseball fanatics, so I wanted to bring a little baseball in. So I looked up Again, where you can look up any box score. So I looked up on June 22nd, 1938, the night of Joe Lewis beating Max Schmeling. It's well, it was Yan at Yankee Stadium, so the Yankees weren't in town. Exactly. So the Yankees are on the road, so I looked up where they were. They, were at, they actually lost a doubleheader that night, okay. or that day, in Cleveland. Okay. The Yankees go on to sweep the World Series that year, but at that point, I think they were in third place. Okay. Uh, so obviously they got going at some point. Uh, they lost a doubleheader to Cleveland in three hours and 57 minutes total. Oh. Both games. Uh, you can't the, play one game now in three yeah, hours. Yeah, it's close. Uh, in New York that day, the Giants did play at the Polo Grounds. Oh, wow. And they beat the Reds in front of 10,371 people. And... The other thing that I looked up, because it reminded me of some of the stories about Joe Lewis related to, there's a lot about Joe Lewis, obviously, but part of it is Joe Lewis, the American versus Hitler. Mm -hmm. And so I looked up Hank Greenberg, naturally, mm -hmm. uh, because Hank Greenberg had that quote that year. That's the year, for people who may not know, 1938 is the year he was chasing Babe Ruth's record of 61 months. He ended up with 58. Mm -hmm. So his quote was, I, during that year at some point, he said, I came to feel that if I, as a Jew, hit a home run, I was hitting one against Hitler. Ironically, on the night of the Lewis Schmeling fight, he did hit a home run in Detroit. Mm. Uh, oh. I just thought it was, or day, I don't know, day night, I don't want to say, I'm not sure, but uh, he, 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 did, uh, he did hit one that day. So, oh, interesting. Uh, it just was... I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, what's yeah. also interesting, so there were, I'm sorry, did you say there were 10,000 people at the Polo Ground? Right, yeah. So there were 80,000 people at Yankee Stadium and right. s watching the um, fight and 70 million people around the world listening. Yeah. That's so, how big the fight was. Yeah, so yeah. now the fight brought, took on a lot more than just boxing, yes. per se. But just to bring it back to baseball, so we kind of know where horse racing is today. We kind of know where boxing is today. And today with baseball, uh, the three of you, I'd like to just get your thoughts about where, where it is. Uh, is, it, is it doing fine? Is it not doing fine? Is it, uh, uh, any, any thoughts you may have? Doing very I've, exactly. got, I've got strong <laughs> opinions on Oh my on God. Well, John and I, were yeah, on the way ahead. over here, we were yeah. talking about it. We're, so, we're both huge, huge baseball fans. I think for both of us, baseball is our favorite sport. Yep. And um, certainly, as, you know, to watch. 
And um, I think the sport's in big trouble. I really do. I mean, I, you know, I've watched the highlights of games. There are so many empty seats in every ballpark. I mean, not in Boston, maybe, and not in uh, L.A. so much. And, and, and I think not... attendance is down. But it's all home runs. They, yeah, what... this, is, this is my perception. John said to this me... is me imposing my opinion like we spoke about. John... This is we're bringing it full circle. Go ahead. John wait. said to me, when was the last time you saw a sliding triple? You know, I mean, yeah. we saw we saw um, Francisco Lindor throw out throw out a guy on a relay to third base the other day, and we said, oh, when was the last time you saw that? Yeah. You know. Yeah, you don't see it often. Like it was a play. Throw comes in, bounces off the wall, outfielder bare hands, it turns it around, far as a strike to Lindor, who's playing his deep short, getting the relay, turns around and throws an absolute strike to the catcher. They get this guy by oh, like three at steps. Home, right. Yeah, at home, and. Um, I actually forwarded the video so that she could see it. And it wasn't even that close a play. It was just really well executed. Right. And you don't see it that often. I right. mean, the home runs are just killing. For a baseball fan, the home runs just make the game that much less interesting to watch. Maybe for younger people, but for me being, a, and maybe I'm just an old guy, you know, who doesn't like change. But I go to the park and the music's blaring. There's, the home runs are, are constant. You look at a highlight reel, it's all home runs. The game's entirely different, and I feel like they're trying to make it something that appeals to younger people to steal them away from other sports. But in doing that, they're not making it better, they're making it worse. So for me, the game's just not as enjoyable as it used to be, and I think that's why they're losing some attendance. In fact, it was an article, I think it was in, in SI, Sports Illustrated, that said something to that effect. What do you think? Well, I... You know, I I'm a, I have season tickets for the Phillies, oh, you do? And, and I I enjoy a full season plan. well I have a full season plan. I don't go to eighty one games, but you know I go to about twenty, and you know people take other games, whatever. But so I I always love baseball. Now having said that, um, every year um, my I take my wife and my two kids for fireworks day. And my, we go to other games, but. It's always like they, every year we've done this forever. My dad took me, and I take them, and so we sure. all go for fireworks game. And they always have great fireworks, and um, so we always go every year. And um, this year, the um, the game that preceded the fireworks was four and a half hours long. <laughs> and my more than a double header. Yeah, and my but quite a bit actually. Yeah, my, yeah. My wife said to me afterwards, she says, I hate to tell you this, but I'm done. I, really? I, I'm, I'm not coming again. She says, I can't take it. And it wasn't that it was four and a half hours. It was that there was no pace to the game. It was mm. none. It, was your it, wife, uh, if I could ask, is, is she a baseball fan? Yeah, she generally is an okay baseball fan. We've been going to games for years and years. And, um, you know, she's not a huge fan like me, but she is a fan. Was um, it a super high-scoring game? No, it wasn't even a super high-scoring game. Every play now was yeah. just very deliberate. Yeah. It Every was, single pitch. Is there, so, yeah. there was a lot of pitching changes, and I know they have the rule with how many times you can go to the mound, but it doesn't really seem to stop. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't speed up the momentum, and so it's not a four-and-a-half-hour game that's a problem. It's just a game with no momentum mm -hmm. and no pace, and... And both my kids were the same way. They were like, "This, you know, I like baseball, but this is torture." And a baseball, if a baseball game is torture, right. I mean, you don't have to go to a baseball game. So if it's not, you know, I understand. Every year there are some games which are not so great, but it was it was a representative game. It was a little longer, you know, than most games. But 
again, for me, I, it was just a long game and whatever, but I understand listening to them. This is why baseball has a problem. They're not going to lose me. Right? Yeah, no, right. you're going to lose us. But they're going to lose them. The next right. generation. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and your wife. Right, and that's who right. they're losing. And the irony is I get the sense that they are afraid they're going to lose them. So they're playing with the game to keep them, and they're making and they're driving them away even more because the game is exactly. what the game is. So right. either guys like Mitch or we are going to take young people and turn them onto the game as to what it is, um, and they'll get it or they won't get it. But by making it something, by trying to make it some morphed game, where it's like home runs and the highlights are like you know compete with basketball and football, it's not that kind of game. Right. And as a result, you know, we bring younger people and they're not buying in, you know, so. You know, it's funny what you were saying, but there wasn't any pace or, I mean, it's, it's probably no drama to the game. I feel like there, there, there's less and less drama to the game, you know, it used to, when you were at a game, there was a story that was being played out in front of you. And now it's just, you get I, a couple of guys on and then it's a three run homer. I mean, right. it, I think a lot of it boils back to the sabermetrics because I think a lot of it and maybe it's not sabermetrics, but somebody along the line decided power runs this game. If you throw harder, if you hit farther, and, and that's where the money is. Uh, players get rewarded for hitting a higher launch angle and uh, exit, exit velocity. velocity off the bat. I know. And all of this stuff that really doesn't matter. I mean, a home run's one run, no matter how high and far it goes. Right. But the, what happens is that they'll make more money by doing that, so it perpetuates itself. Everybody's going to throw harder to hit the, uh, the home run. Nobody cares anymore a fan or the players I don't think if, if there's a runner at first if the guy hits to the right side and you know nobody you know uh, I see runners they, these are pro leaguers look I can't play a lick but as a fan I know you don't run to third if the ball's in front of you you know right, right. and they'll do it and they're out and it's no big deal because he's got a lot of power you know this guy yeah, can hit so no, what I mean, so but nobody the, cares if a guy hits 248 as yeah, long as they're hitting That's what I mean. As long as he's right. hitting homers, you or can run with the ball in front of you. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Oh, I know. Yeah. Situational yeah. Dennis Eckersley was talking about it on the Red Sox game the other night, and he said, he said, you can strike out 150 times a game, nobody, a year, nobody cares. Right. If, as long as you hit 50 or more, they don't care if you hit 240. Well, I think that for, there's, there's always been an assumption that if we make the game better in terms of how it is played, more efficient, that makes a better game. I think they have, they have succeeded in making the game very efficient, but hell to watch. And I, I, I think it's hard to, there was always the assumption, well, if we make the game more efficient and, and, and better, like this is the best way to score a run, it's more interesting. But I think we're learning that yeah, it's not more interesting, it's less interesting. But I don't think you can go back to a, to, um, a, a, a GM and say, change how you play because this other way is better. I think they're right. They're right that the way they're playing it now is more efficient. Um, but it's, it's less interesting. It's less interesting. Right. And I don't right. think anybody contemplated that possibility right. yeah, winning, that, that like, this is not the best win? situation for fans. Right. Right. And also, what's the point of these openers, these pitchers who now open Well, that's games. another issue. But <laughs> I don't get it. Well, before we even get to that, I think that uh, one of the other issues is that there's because of how much money it is and because of everything we're talking about, there's a big disparity between the haves and the have-nots. You know, Baltimore is just not going to compete, you know? And I think that they'll, and they'll time it and they'll say, all right, you know, we might compete, so we're gonna take, we're gonna put all our money in for this one year. And then players will be there for a few years and they'll leave. 
and then they'll say, all right, well, those players left. We're not going to win. Sell off all of our players, and then we'll just wait until something, you know, we get some more prospects comes along. So what happens is out of 30 teams, you know, eight are really competing. I mean, ones that are losing, are they're, they're, they have like three, 400 winning percentages. I mean, that, for those fans, that's really, really tough. And, I mean, the teams that are winning now are winning 100, 110 games. That used to be a real lot of games. And now they're just beating up on the hat. Like, it used to be you want to win a series. Now, if the Yankees go into Baltimore, you want to sweep. Like, you know, we got to sweep this series because you don't want to lose. This is an opportunity. You don't lose to them. That's not the way the game was. The game was there were always a couple of stars on every team. It, it didn't matter. If my father took me to a game, and I'm going back because my father's been gone a long time. If he took me to a game, the Senators were around, all right, at least it was Frank Howard. You know, Orioles came in, you had Boot Powell, and, and it's, I understand free agency changed that, it's good for the players, but again, while the model works, it doesn't necessarily make it more interesting to watch. I don't want to watch, it like, uh, the Red Sox, let's say, play a team like Kansas City. You know they're going to w- probably win, you know, and if they lose, they've lost an opportunity. That's, where's the competitive balance? Well, now I'm depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, don't want, I don't want to get everyone depressed. Actually, I've gone recently to, uh, I don't know if any of you have, but uh, I went with my wife, who actually is not a, uh, doesn't really like baseball, of course. Uh, but we went to a Staten Island Yankees game, yeah. which is the New York Pendant, so low A ball. She loved it. Oh, yeah. She, I yeah. loved it, too, I have to say. Like, we I, 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 I was up. picking stuff up just from a baseball perspective that they do not do in the major leagues. So the guy gets up, I'm sitting there, and... I'm trying to explain to her certain things and to keep it somewhat simple until with two outs and two strikes in the bottom of the ninth, the catcher dropped the third strike, then I had to describe why, and then the guy got on first, and now I had to describe like how this guy somehow got the first, which is not easy to describe. Like, you're saying <laughs> yeah. the entire day that three yeah. strikes are out and three outs, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, some guy comes up, I think he was a number four hitter for uh, whoever they were playing, guy lays down this perfect bunt. And like I almost jumped out of my seat like, <laughs> like wow. That, right. Like that is gorgeous. <laughs> and, you know, but I'm like, who am I saying this to? You know, like like it was just it was it was beautiful to watch this. Like sure. that guy gets up, he sees they're doing this crazy shift on him, he puts a bunt down and he walks to first base, you know. Yeah. And uh the but, shift is another thing, right? Yeah that's a whole thing. <laughs> but, but all of I think my the irony is attendance in major league baseball keeps going down. But attendance in minor league baseball is going up. Oh well, so, I have to tell you, we um, we were invited to a bar mitzvah in Virginia, Blacksburg, Virginia, Virginia yep. and the weekend <laughs> we managed to go to three minor league games. <laughs> As we tra- <laughs> we were driving down, we would stop in different cities. We yeah. had the schedule. Yeah, and at one, point, exactly. at one point, we thought John, about four. We, we, were, we were at a ballpark, and John said, right. "Oh, can you go get me?" I said, "I'm going to go get um, some hot dogs," and he said, "Oh, okay." He gave me a twenty dollar bill, and, and he said, um, "So yeah, could you get me two hot, hot dogs?" <laughs> yeah, and um, can you get me? Um, yeah, this was like for a beer or something. Here's right. twenty. You know? yeah. I come back with like fifteen dollars. Yeah, yeah, change. I'm like, holy. <laughs> Yeah. And it was great. We had such a good time. Well, that's a whole other thing. How like a father brings uh, a family of four to a game. You know, that's a really the expensive thing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, especially Yankee Stadium. Yeah, you're talking I, about I, like a thousand bucks between the tickets yeah. and the game. Literally, literally. Yeah. No, I know. A thousand dollars. Yeah, it's insane. How, how much are your tickets in Philly? Uh, so mine are seventy-five a seat, and they're, they're, um, they're good seats. Yeah, they're like right behind the dugout. So. Uh, 
Um, so it's yeah, those seats in Yankee Stadium would be a few hundred dollars oh, a ticket. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it's seventy five bucks. It's right behind the dugout? Well, it's like, yeah. It's more than a few hundred. Yeah. Maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. a couple zeros. So, yeah, um, yeah they're, but they're, they're nice. I mean, you know, it's more affordable than, than Yankee Stadium. But still, it gets expensive. I mean, you right. have parking and then yeah. everything else. And so, yeah, you're still looking at a few hundred bucks by the time right. you're done. Easy. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes the game, you know, you don't want baseball to be exclusive. The whole idea about baseball was that it was an everyman you know, a spectator sport, everybody went there, you know. It's uh, it's too bad. I hate to see the attendance going down, but I do think, we, we touched on a few things, and I, and I depressed Mitch with the, uh, the haves and the have-nots, but I think that a lot of it has to do with that they're tinkering with the game. I think it's to attract younger people, and I don't think it's making the game, as Mitch said, more enjoyable to it's watch. It's also not working. Yeah. Because they're not attracting younger people. No, but I think Mitch is right when he says that it's, it's, what they're doing is effective. I mean, like the sabermetrics and everything, they know how to win. They're making a more efficient game, but it's just not more, it's not more enjoyable to watch. Right. Ultimately, it's to entertain, right? I mean, right, but it feels too corporate. Yeah. And also, I mean, the Red Sox, the Red Sox won the world. I'm from Boston, so I'm a huge Red Sox fan. But, <laughs> so, so my team it makes won October's the... interesting in our house. Oh, yeah. Because I'm a Yankee like, fan. Uh, uh, Old, uh, yeah, couple, but we've um, heard that before. What was yeah. it, Carville? And yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I'm a Phillies fan. My October's a freak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Mets fan. I can't even say it. Hey, yeah, well, although we're hot now. You're a game behind in the wild card. You know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. You were talking about Boston. No, but um, so the Red Sox are having an off year, and John keeps telling me, I, I think they're going to break up the team. And I'm like, what? Okay, so they're not, they're not going to win this year and we're going to break up this team? We have such a great team. And, oh, no, no, that's not the way it works now in baseball. You know, if your team doesn't produce the next year after you win the World Series, they're going to start selling Well, they've players. got some long-term contracts. It's a lot of money. I don't know that they're going to do, uh, they're going to do that. Well, but that was certainly a, Yeah, that was certainly a, uh, a thought that was going around for a while. They have a lot of big contracts. And if they're not going to win for a few years, why carry them? Boston, though, Boston's the type of, they're, they're a franchise where they... They can carry not, it. Yeah, they're not going to just blow Yeah, it they can afford it. You know. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, well, it's a big business. Well, yeah, as you can tell to those listening, you have four baseball fanatics. If the commissioner is listening to this, just try not to screw the game up. Call us. We'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. We're a resource. Uh, <laughs> But I just want to close uh, with, actually, I'm going to close with the words of uh, John and Wheezy of what they wrote in this book. Uh, again, it's called War in the Ring, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling, and the Fight Between America and Hitler. A terrific book. Ages 10 and up should read this book. And I just want to close with their words. It was two minutes before 10 o'clock when Joe finally headed down the runway. He was dressed in his familiar blue silk robe, the one with Joe Lewis stitched on the back. As he stepped out of the third base dugout, the crowd erupted into a resounding cheer that said, you're our savior, as clearly as it did kill that Nazi bastard. Joe made his way past the pitcher's mound to the ring, flanked by handlers, bodyguards, and security personnel, politely shaking hands as the din continued. Max followed minutes later. The instant he planted his German foot on the American baseball field, the booing began. 
It was the sound of fear, of hatred, of 80,000 barking pit bulls. Cigarette butts flew down from the upper decks as did used banana peels and crumpled paper cups. Max draped a towel over his head and with 25 police officers acting as escorts, tossed a few jabs in the air as he bounced his way to the ring, nodding and looking out at the crowd with a faint smile. And that is the war in the ring. Thank you to John, Weezy, and Mitch. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Great. Thank you very much. And also, thank, thank you to Sauce Pizzeria and St. Mark's Wine and Liquor as we take care of that. Thank you.